Okay, we should be live. Hey everyone, welcome to another interview here on my YouTube channel. Uh, today I've got a special guest. We're going to be talking about uh, pulsar timing arrays and methods of detecting gravitational waves. So uh, the question I always ask my guests, who are you? What do you do? So my name is Boris Gwinterov. I am postdoctoral researcher at the Grand Sasso Science Institute in Italy. Uh, so I um, did my PhD um, at Monash University in Australia, and um, I worked on various gravitational wave data analysis, uh, and that's what pretty much what I'm also working on here uh, in Italy as well. So the, I guess the, the reason I, I brought you on was there was a press release that came out, I guess a couple of weeks ago, talking about your work with pulsar timing arrays. So I'd like to kind of just get into the underlying idea of what's going on here. I mean, I guess, you know, we've talked a lot about LIGO and Virgo and the various existing gravitational wave observatories. So how does one use a pulsar to detect gravitational waves? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting idea. Uh, and uh, I guess the main key uh, term here is that the pulsar itself, and it's very, very precise um, astronomical instrument. So uh, it's a bit unintuitive because usually when we think about some measurement, uh, we consider some something that is made, like some, made by uh, people, like, um, I don't know, some LIGO, for example, or uh, interferometer or something like that, where we construct something to measure. Uh, however, uh, the pulsar, uh, is like, you know, something that the nature provides us with. And um, it's uh, some specific pulsars called millisecond pulsars. Uh, they rotate very fast and they act as very, very precise clocks. Um, in fact, they are so precise that uh, their um, precision is comparable to those uh, of atomic clocks uh, when we observe pulsars over very long time scales. And that's basically uh, what is the, um, what we use to detect gravitational waves. So when, um, let's say, uh, when we look for a gravitational wave um, and um, we, with pulsar timing arrays, we look at also a special kind of gravitational waves, which are called nanohertz gravitational waves. So uh, these are a very, very ultra low frequency gravitational waves. So um, essentially um, what is happening is that when this gravitational wave passes through our galaxy, it uh, changes uh, the space time between the, the stars and the galaxy and uh, slightly affects um, uh, basically the propagation of radio pulses from this millisecond pulsars. And this millisecond pulsars are basically, um, they're across this galaxy. So we have this network of very precise clocks, which um, uh, based on time delays uh, allows us to, to actually deter, uh, to, to search for these gravitational waves and uh, um, hopefully detect them very soon. So, so, you know, when I think about like LIGO and Virgo, you've got these L-shaped detector systems and there's two of them and now there's more of them with Virgo and, and more coming online all the time. And they're detecting these ripples of colliding black holes, colliding neutron stars, very, very high frequency events that are then, uh, I guess, distorting the actual length of the arms. And so we're getting this, this detection. And and it's, you know, it's amazing to detect these black holes that are colliding. And, and the question is always like, sure, you can detect, like, it's weird, you can detect colliding black holes that are 
hundreds of millions, potentially even billions of light years away. And yet when you ask, can you detect merging supermassive black holes, the astronomers always say, well, no, it's, it happens too slowly. So can you explain to that, like, just why, why are traditional gravitation, I can't believe I'm saying traditional gravitational wave observatories, but, but why can those not detect merging supermassive black holes, while say, pulsars might be the way to do it? Yeah, so that's a good question. And uh, I guess, the, in short, the answer is that um, um, related to the size of the black hole. So uh, LIGO experiment and the Virgo experiment, um, they um, look for black holes that are basically a mass on the order of like, let's say, 10 solar masses. So this is the, this is the, the how massive are the black holes that uh, LIGO and Virgo are um, uh, observing. Um, however, when we look at supermassive black holes, their mass is uh, billions of solar masses. And uh, uh, well, there is a well-known well proportionality between uh, the mass and the, um, and the, the size of the black hole, the radius of the event horizon. So um, basically, the, I guess the more massive is the black hole, the bigger is the event horizon. So effectively, um, when we see two supermassive black holes merge, uh, their, how to say, the radius uh, or the, their separation is still too big to be, uh, um, to be in the, this audio band uh, that is picked up by LIGO and Virgo. So they're practically, they merge, uh, uh, they, they start merging uh, way before the, um, this, uh, the, their frequency is high enough to be uh, picked up by LIGO and Virgo. So that's, I guess, the main idea. And just give us a sense of, of that frequency. So like literally the ripples of space time are rippling past you. And, and, you know, we're experiencing them all the time right now as black holes are passing through our body. So I guess how quickly in a in a solar mass black hole event, how quickly are they actually like what is the frequency of them? So it depends on the specific mass, but uh, the range of the frequency is basically for LIGO and Virgo is between, it's basically around um, around 100 hertz, but it can go from 10 hertz to uh, to a few hundred hertz and uh, even a thousand, but usually, um, yeah, the, the black holes merge basically within uh, that range and neutron stars as well. So neutron stars, they're smaller, so they merge at higher frequencies, um, black holes at slightly lower frequencies, but right. uh, yeah. And uh, as for supermassive black holes, they merge at, uh, basically around, well, they, they coalesce at somewhere around nanohertz frequencies. Um, so as you can see, it's 10, uh, well, around like 10 orders of magnitude below. Um, so, and we need to, well, in, in, in terms of, so I'm talking about hertz, but uh, if we, um, for example, discuss the time scales, right? Uh, the nanohertz uh, corresponds to um, basically decades of observations. So, uh, these uh, ripples of space-time that we see from what we expect to see from nanohertz gravitational waves, they will for, for that we'll need to observe uh, more than ten years, um, and we already have observed more than ten years. Hmm. So hold on. So let me let me just I just want to sort of so you know hertz obviously cycles per second. So if you've got something that is say one hundred hertz, then it is happening one hundred. You're experiencing one hundred of these ripples going past you per second, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So with a nanohertz, you're experiencing, but it's not a millions or billions of cycles per second. It's the other way around. You're waiting a billion seconds or a, for one of these waves to pass over you. 
Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so obviously you've got to be very patient. And so you're saying that, and so what does, what happens to the pulsars over the course of this, you know, as these giant waves are sweeping past, are they hitting multiple pulsars at the same time? And so you're seeing this, this similar effect across all of them? Yes, and that's actually precisely the feature that we're looking for. So by just looking at one pulsar, uh, there is no way of knowing whether um, this effect uh, of, um, let's say, delays and advances in arrival times for the pulses from um, gravitational waves or not. But when we uh, observe an array of pulsars, uh, then um, we expect to observe a very specific uh, correlations between this arrival times and the array of pulsars that is uh, specific to gravitational waves uh, of general relativity. Right, right. Um, and so and so you've been doing these observations for 10 years now. And what have you found? Well, uh, actually, only recently, uh, there are some uh, quite, um, quite interesting results, very, um, well, somewhat expected, but also somewhat uh, surprising. And um, um, as I mentioned, we, well, from gravitational waves, we do expect to see uh, this spatial correlations. Uh, but of course, we, um, when we analyze the pulsars, before the spatial correlations, uh, it's also been predicted that um, uh, before, actually, we'll be, be able to resolve spatial correlations across the sky, uh, we'll see the noise in the pulsars uh, that will be, um, that will have a similar, how to say, time and spectral properties, which means that, uh, the, the overall um, amounts of delays and advances uh, in arrival times in many pulsars across the sky will, um, will be very similar. And that's actually what we're seeing uh, with recent observations. So starting from nanograph um, collaboration observations uh, um, and then uh, the, also the parks um, collaboration Australia, which, uh, which I work with and um, recently the European pulsar time array, we are observing this uh, this so-called common noise um, across the pulsars, which people think might be um, like the first signs of the gravitational background. But of course, uh, um, in particularly um, in, in the Parks collaboration, uh, with Parks collaboration, we argue that uh, uh, it's, um, well, of course, everybody knows that, but we, we emphasize that we need to wait a bit longer to actually make sure we detect spatial correlations because uh, the noise in the pulsars, um, the noise from coming from these neutron stars or the neutron stars, it might also um, introduce a feature uh, similar to what we observe. So um, how many pulsars do you actually keep track of? Uh, with the Parks Pulsar Time in Array, we, uh, in the, the data release um, that we used for the publication is um, uh, employs 26 millisecond pulsars. Um, and uh, Nanograph used uh, more than that. So uh, they included, I think, around something like on the order of 50 pulsars, but I don't remember exactly. And I mean, do you have to? Um, so, I mean, with Parks, it's a steerable radio telescope. And so you're looking at one pulsar, you're, you're recording data from it, you're then turning and looking at a different pulsar and recording data from it. And, and, and then you have to give up the telescope for someone else who's using it for some completely different uh, series of observations. So if, you know, if, if you had like a telescope that was observing all of the pulsars that you wanted to all of the time to collect all of the data, 
what fraction are you getting today? Hmm. Um, actually, I'm not. I don't know exactly, but the fraction will be very small. So um, for less example, than one percent, like. Yeah, I think less than one percent uh, because we do observe pulsars um, basically roughly once every two weeks, and of course there's limited uh, observation time. Um, so, and there's a limited, I guess, um, time where pulsar is um, in the in the sky. So, yeah, the diffraction is very small. Um, however, uh, the telescopes are quite powerful, so we observe for some time, we um, average down observations, and then we construct the so-called uh, um, arrival times and their uncertainties. And based on these, we um, we collect them over uh, many many years, and uh, we use these data sets to to search for gravitational waves. So, I mean, I guess the big question, of course, is: Have you detected any yet? Mm -hmm. So yes, no, not not yet, uh, not yet, but we are getting there. <laughs> what? So what would it? I guess is it is it because the signals from merging supermassive black holes are outside the boundaries of the detections that you're able to make? Or is it just that your predictions are wrong, or haven't haven't sort of matched reality yet? Yeah, I think uh, there well, the predictions were overall not definitely not wrong. So um, there, are di there are different predictions. But uh, of course, the physics is very complicated. And uh, I think at this point, we are getting to this, um, to this area where uh, theorists predict that we might see uh, start start, uh, start seeing this gravitational background but of course it depends on many factors for example uh, there are different uh, dynamics uh, in in interactions of supermassive black holes with galaxies for example and um, we don't know all of the physics there yet so um, basically uh, we um, we don't well, what we see with current experimental results it's not unexpected and uh, but it's getting more and more interesting because uh, um, yeah, the, the more we observe, um, I guess, uh, the more we can constrain the, uh, the evolution of uh, these interactions of supermassive black holes and galaxies. Uh, but of course, the, the scientific case uh, for pulsar turners is, is very solid. And, you know, we already detected the gravitational waves from, uh, from compact binaries with LIGO. So we know we, that, and we know that these binaries exist in nature. So it's just a matter of, uh, uh, maybe a few more years before we not a few, but uh, several, maybe more years. Uh, nobody really knows uh, when we'll detect, but uh, yeah, it's uh, hopefully it happens. And you know, pulsar timers are very slow, so as you mentioned, uh, it takes time. And I guess, I mean, one of the things that you're, I guess, uh, you know, how often do you think these mergers are happening across the unit across the observable universe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, actually, I'm not not hundred percent sure how often they they, they are continuously like uh, coalescing, uh, and there are many many of such sources because we know there are practically uh, lots of lots of uh, galaxies out there. So it happens continuously even now. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers of uh, of the rates, um, but you know the pulsar time rays they do not uh, not really um, detect the mergers of these black holes. They will detect actually the this uh, uh, the case where they coalesce and uh, they will merge at slightly higher frequencies. Um, so what we do is we observe what impulsive timers we expect to have observations of this you know this um, preliminary phase when they when they only the coalesce and uh, and they will merge a bit at higher frequencies. Uh, this is basically a, a, this will be the frequencies where 
the least experiment will um, um, will uh, look into and uh, uh, th that's where it will happen but yeah so so it's almost as if there are many many black holes out there that are close and are already creating these very long gravitational waves H how long will they spend in this nano grav regime before they actually go into that higher frequency actual merger like is it years decades millions of years yeah that's uh that might be close to millions of years yeah that's they will spend a very long time there and um yeah and, and so then every black hole pair that is out there you know even if there's maybe only one mer actual merger every, I don't know, few decades, you're going to have potentially a lot that are in this slow process of, of orbiting around each other, just getting closer and closer and closer. And so, and so instead of it being like these one individual events that cross us, it's more like this, I don't know, I'm thinking of it's like a wavy chaotic ocean with waves kind of all over the place. And you're trying to, to pick them up. Uh, yeah, that's a very nice description. Wavy critical ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's precisely what, and, what is out there. And so can you from this wavy chaotic ocean, can you can you pick out and even figure out the direction and distance where one of these events is happening? So um, yeah, uh, I think um, First, it is expected it will detect uh, the signatures of this uh, wavy chaotic ocean because uh, of the, um, I guess, I guess the overall um, probabilities. Uh, but we we might actually see some individual sources there too. So um, at some point when uh, we'll get new um, pulsar stimulatory experiments online, then they might be uh, sensitive enough to actually pick out um, uh, a few interesting individual sources um yeah so that that that, that is uh, that might happen that would be very interesting uh, but so far i guess yeah it's it's quite unlikely that uh, at the moment uh, the detectors are sensitive enough for this and and so then i guess you know you talked about this this moment when the black holes are actually merging and the frequency goes up so what what kind of frequency would that be compared to 100 hertz nanohertz where would you get to with an actual merging event of supermassive black holes? So that would be somewhere, uh, I guess, close to millihertz, uh, roughly. Uh, so that's the, I guess, that's the frequencies that the future space-based LISA experiment will mm -hmm. explore. So, so again, millihertz. So you're looking at thousands of seconds per for these waves to to pass over. So if you but but it seems like like I mean, is there a reason why you wouldn't be able to detect these millihertz events in pulsars? Like, is there? I, I wonder, like, why does it have to be the really long ones? Why can't it detect more frequent events? So that actually um, partly has to do with some data analysis specifics of pulsar time arrays, and partly with the fact that. Uh, Pulsar time arrays do not observe um, pulsars frequently enough for millihertz frequencies, so that's one part. The second part is that um, at these frequencies, the pulsar time arrays, even if I think even if they observe the pulsars that often, their sensitivity would be um, not really, um, yeah, not not really useful there. So 
uh, I guess just by design, this um, I guess the terminary measurements are I guess they're more sensitive when we observe long periods mm. of time. But uh, if if for example drawing a sensitivity curve for pulsar terminaries, um, for for example for this measuring this gravitational strain of space time, um, by basically by design of the experiment. Uh, uh, the sensitivity goes really high at um, at high frequencies, so it's not really useful there. So does does a bigger telescope get you a more precise measurement, or can a small telescope like it, like do you just get the do you get whatever the the clock is telling you, or do you need to have a big a bigger telescope like Parks or even say Fast to be able to mm -hmm. make a more accurate detection? Yeah, I think to make a more accurate detection, what helps is really, um, I guess, two factors. So first of all, is this, uh, this so-called measurement error of the telescope. And um, the lower is the measurement error, of course, the, basically the lower is this uh, noise level that uh, uh, basically the, uh, for, the, for, the, for measuring this uh, gravitational background. So that's one thing that affects uh, our uh, detection uh, prospects. And the second one is the number of pulsars in the array. And there's actually the third one, and the third one is that the pulsars themselves, because we use them as, a, as in our measurement, they, they introduce uh, measurement errors and they introduce noise, in fact. And uh, we know, uh, like, the reason also why we don't use, for example, regular pulsars is, uh, uh, well, one part is that because, uh, because I guess they are intrinsic uh, properties, but uh, uh, in terms of like the overall, you know, the pulse size, for example, because the, the wider is the pulse, uh, uh, the less precise we can measure the arrival time. And, but the second over the long time scales, the pulsars also have the so-called red noise. And that's also, I mean, that's kind of noise that uh, looks similarly to gravitational waves. Um, so we basically, when we observe pulsar for, for like a 10 years, we see that uh, with this red noise that at some point, like first, let's say five years, uh, we see an, a delay in arrival times. And then the second five years, we see an advance in arrival time. So this is this is uh, might be associated with the irregular rotation of the pulsar over these long periods of time. So that also affects um, mm. our measurements. Of course, if we get like a more sensitive instrument like SKE, for example, square kilometer array uh, in the future, um, it will pull, uh, it will put down the noise um, for the pulsars. Um, but of course, if pulsar has red noise, then uh, it will still not be, um, I guess, um, yeah, it won't be very sensitive to gravitational waves as the pulsar with better intrinsic noise properties. Now, now you said that you don't want to use regular pulsars. So, like the the slower pulsars, you you like the faster pulsars. Uh, so yes, by regular pulsars, I mean the slower pulsars. Uh, in pulsar time in arrays, we uh, we use the so-called millisecond pulsars. They uh, because the rotation period is. Um, uh, somewhere around a millisecond, so they rotate very fast. Basically, you can see millisecond is, a, um, in fact, uh, the fastest pulsars they rotate like uh, around 700 times per second. Uh, so you can imagine basically like a, uh, a star with size of a city rotating 700 times per second. It's, uh, yeah, it's a very extreme uh, system. And I guess how many of those are available to us to observe? Well, uh, potentially there are, I guess, well, from, from the numbers uh, uh, in current pulsar temporary experiments, we use around, let's say, uh, like from 25 to like 50 to possibly 100 pulsars that we can use. But of course, uh, all of the, all the brightest pulsars, they were already discovered. So I guess the new experiments, they will uh, find the, the fainter pulsars. And in the, in the, if the pulsar is uh, faint, then uh, it also limits its ability to be useful to 
to detect gravitational waves. So, um, so there is some kind of like a balance there between uh, finding more pulsars and uh, actually like relying on pulsars that have very nice uh, intrinsic noise properties and uh, um, yeah, very sensitive and uh, good timers. It's interesting. So, like, I've I've been reading some news coming from China's Fast Telescope, and a lot of their work is just finding pulsars, and they've been announcing many, many new pulsars. And so, I guess some of those are usable for the for that. So, I guess it's very helpful for them to be turning up new pulsars that you can then use for your to expand the array. Yes, oh. yes, uh, that would be great. I mean, if we can add more pulsars, and uh, so that would be really useful for um, resolving the so-called spatial correlations that I previously mentioned. Uh, that this basically the spatial correlations is the main signature of the gravitational wave background. So this is the, the smoking gun. If we detect the spatial correlations, that that's basically the detection of the gravitational waves. And uh, the more pulsars cover we have, the more uh, in the sky, basically the the better we'll be able to resolve these spatial correlations. Um, so I guess, you know, you talked about the fact that maybe you're using, you're, you're observing the pulsars for like one fraction of a percent, because obviously, there's limited telescopes and, and they're busy. Um, but let's imagine that sort of a next generation pulsar timing array network was developed, which was a, you know, one dish directed at each pulsar and they were just making continuous observations while they were up in the no, you know, let's put it in space. And then they're just continuously observing these pulsars nonstop, maybe one per pulsar. Um, what do you think are the limits of this technique? So if you had that capability, would it mm. get you to where would it get you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, well, the limits probably are related to, I guess, the overall um, our ability overall to use the telescope time and, uh, of course, the computational uh, constraints. Because if you have that much data, uh, it will be really, really hard to uh, to process all of there, this data. There are no limits. You have a gigantic, you have much supercomputing time as is necessary to to process <laughs> the data, and there are no so, limits on the telescope time. You've got each one, each pulsar, you know, each telescope is named after its pulsar, and that's all it looks at all the times. So in that case, uh, the limits will be uh, linked to, once again, the intrinsic noise properties of the pulsar. So um, of course, the, I mean, uh, if the pulsar, for example, uh, it has like, in, in, in pulsar terminaries, we discuss the so-called jitter noise. It's basically the intrinsic uh, noise of the uh, pulsar associated with this uh, pulse profile or the width of the pulse. So of course, like we can't measure um, individual pulse better than the, this pulsar already. Uh, provides us with right uh, because it's you know the physical uh, it's uh, associated with this beaming of the pulsar and um, we can't do any better than that but of course uh, i think with for example the new um, instruments like the square kilometer array and even the meerkat which is the telescope in south africa which is the precursor for the square kilometer array so this, they, these experiments really get us um, down to this uh, to this intrinsic uh, noise levels of the pulsars themselves. So the telescope basically noise is not becoming important anymore. And uh, as you mentioned, like this is the similar cases you mentioned where we are limited by basically the, the intrinsic noise properties and they provide some really, really nice and, uh, and very, really um, exciting results where uh, the timing precision for some of the pulsars uh, gets really low and, uh, oh, sorry, it gets, gets basically, it gets very nice and uh, the, the measurement area gets very low and uh, 
yeah, th this would be amazing uh, for for gravitational wave searches. And I mean, for now we observed only like for a few years with them, but uh, when we observe for longer periods, we would have some really nice constraints and maybe even like uh, see the detection of um, nanohertz gravitational waves with these new facilities because oh. they're really precise. And I mean, I guess what I'm what I'm driving at is like the next level after detecting merging supermassive black holes is to try to detect the background gravitational waves of the universe, essentially the the ripples left by the Big Bang and inflation. Do you think that a upgraded pulsar timing array gets us to this point that we are detecting the the Big Bang itself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think um, I think that like honestly, uh, I think that might be uh, very hard to do, and it will depend on the model of this uh, this primordial gravitational waves. Um, some models uh, predict uh, there will be signatures, uh, there will be basically a background of these gravitational waves left over from the very early universe that will be detectable by pulsar timing arrays, but. Uh, um, unlike the science case for supermassive black hole binaries, which is uh, very solid, uh, the science case for the uh, inflationary, this inflationary gravitational waves or other early universe gravitational waves, it's not as solid because um, there are different models and the, um, they predict uh, different, um, I guess, different backgrounds and some like some of the standard of these backgrounds are uh, much, much lower than the, the noise levels that we can possibly get with pulsar timers. Of course, if we're lucky and if uh, there, there was some interesting physics going on in the early universe, um, we could uh, see these gravitational waves. And that, of course, like that would be uh, just uh, like very exciting. And we will learn so much um, about our universe this way. But uh, um, this is like not a solid science cases for the, the supermassive black hole binaries. Well, I like this idea. I mean, like, as you mentioned with Lisa, the the next step that I've heard proposed to go beyond Lisa is like a one that's 12 Lisa's all flying in formation. And that would be the Big Bang Observer. And maybe that would be the version of of an interferometer that gets you all the way back to the beginning of the universe. But but if there's a natural way to just use those pulsars that are right there, and you don't have to fly 12 spacecraft in close formation, that would be great. Um, uh, so then, like, let's imagine that you could, you could see the universe in gravitational waves as precisely as we can see it in visible wavelengths or infrared, right out to the edge of the observable universe, what kinds of events would we be able to see? What would that be able to tell us? Uh, you mean, uh... In the, in the early universe, just across the universe, like, 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 I'll give you an example, like, like, when you look at the universe in x rays, you see the hot interstellar gas surrounding galaxies, you see the interstellar intergalactic medium, you see, certain features are far more visible. When when you look at the universe in radio waves, microwaves, you can see the the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so if we could look at the universe and see just gravity, gravity, gravitational waves, what would we what would we see? What would what would it look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, first of all, we would see 
um, this, um, I guess, the one good example is we'll see something that will be an, uh, a very significant source of um, both signal and noise in this experiment, and that's the um, the so-called uh, the foreground of uh, white dwarf binaries uh, in our galaxy. So we'll have basically this white dwarf stars orbiting each other, and uh, they will produce this um, um, gravitational waves in the millihertz band. And uh, uh, this, um, I guess, the space around us will be filled with this uh, this radiation of uh, like space-time wobbling uh, from from these binaries. Of course, when we go farther away from our galaxy, we'll see. Uh, oh, also in our galaxy, what we might see is we might see, for example, the neutron stars and uh, under certain, let's say, magnetic fields and uh, under uh, certain conditions, they might slightly deform. So they, they might um, not just be spherical, but they might be like some, has some kind of like a bump on them or uh, they, their internal structure might be different, uh, like non-uniform. So, uh, so these galactic neutron stars, they will rotate and uh, uh, basically by the emission of gravitational waves, the structure will uh, tend to be more spherical again and we'll see these um, maybe more, of course, more faint um, gravitational wave emission, but also different uh, frequencies because uh, this will be, uh, I guess, more like LIGO-related uh, frequencies. Um, so then, uh, as we go farther away from our galaxy, we'll see this uh, this uh, LIGO signals, LIGO-Virgo signals with uh, compact binaries merging. So we have black holes and neutron stars uh, coalescing, merging, and then producing this uh, this radiation traveling from all over uh, the uh, the universe from us. Uh, so then uh, we'll see supermassive black holes when we have merging galaxies, uh, then the black, supermassive black holes with billions of solar masses at their centers, they, uh, they coalesce and merge and they this produce slow frequency gravitational waves. And uh, uh, of course, uh, there will be the background, uh, like, you know, this uh, hum of radiation and there will be the, some individual uh, sources on top of that. So it will be like uh, something like that. And of course, from the very early universe, we'll see uh, this, uh, possibly this um, primordial um, gravitational background that will be, um, uh, you know, it is expected to be across like many, many um, frequencies. Um, so it will be at different time scales, right? Happening uh, like this, this waves will be at different time scales, but uh, uh, they will be very, very low in amplitude. So it will be very quiet um, overall. So that would be like, the, the uh, I guess the, the most uh, distant uh, events in gravitational radiation that we could see. That's that's really cool. I really I really like that that sort of picture in my mind. I'm kind of imagining this totally different universe seen by by mass interacting as opposed to things shining, which would be really fascinating. If you could then overlay that that vision over top of the existing observations, like push it into the multimodal process, what big outstanding questions in astronomy could we then answer? Mm -hmm. Even by, by combining the gravitational wave uh, observations? Yeah, like, like if, you took, if you took that, that beautiful vision, you know, that, that image of the all-sky image of the gravitational wave happening, and you knew the distances, and then you overlaid on top of that the kinds of certain, you know, the, the Hubble deep image and... Um, and you know, things like that. What, you know, there are all these controversies, questions that we have in astronomy, like how fast is the universe expanding and, and, and things like that. What, what kind of answers could we get out of putting those two regimes together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. And we can get many, many useful answers from uh, using gravitational wave observations. So for example, as I mentioned, um, the neutron stars themselves, they can emit this uh, gravitational waves, right? And uh, 
but of course, we can't look inside a neutron star. Uh, there's no way of accessing this information. So with gravitational waves, um, by detecting these gravitational waves, we'll be able to look into these very dense objects um, when we also, for example, look at uh, very far away distances uh, in the universe, then, uh, for example, and look at binary mergers of binary neutron stars, they, they do produce these gravitational waves, and they also do produce electromagnetic, um, electromagnetic signatures, like, for example, for this first uh, binary neutron star merger, where we have this Ilanova emission, which is um, optical, right, and uh, we have this gamma ray burst, and uh, basically these... Uh, they, they, they provide a lot of useful uh, insights about the physics inside this object, but also by collecting this information from um, all over the universe, we'll be able to, um, for example, measure the, uh, the Hubble constant very, uh, like in an independent way from, from current uh, cosmological observations, because we can measure the distance from gravitational wave signature, and we can measure the, the so-called redshift uh, from electromagnetic observations, and the redshift is basically, basically like a, how, uh, how, how the wavelength of light changes when it flies from the source to us. So uh, by doing this, uh, we can do precision cosmology, for example. And um, of course, with primordial gravitational waves from the very, very early universe, this will be uh, the, probably the only way um, to, to study the, the physical processes that happened back then, because uh, the earliest light that we can see is uh, this cosmic microwave background radiation. It's basically the uh, it's from the time in the universe where the universe was uh, well stopped being basically very dense and st uh, and started to allow the light to pass through and uh, this is the first light that we can see but we can't see uh, the light before then because of course the universe was like super dense and uh, no no light would reach us from there so gravitational waves because they could um, they could overcome this uh, obstacle it's the only way for us to learn about the early universe. Uh, that that was happening there. Yeah, that actually sort of leads into my into my next question, which is that that there is this time, you know, the cosmic microwave background is three hundred ish thousand years after the Big Bang, and before that, the universe was opaque, and so there was no way to see any light. And so, what and really, gravitational waves are the only way to look into that into that time, and what do you think that we could see maybe in more granularity like you know what would we see in that in that period mm -hmm. yeah i think it's uh, for now um it's very hard to say because um i guess um we haven't done that yet and there of course there are different models that predict different kinds of gravitational waves we might be able uh, to see um even it is predicted we might be able even to see some gravitational waves that left over uh, the transition, so-called phase transitions, which were basically uh, the, like the, the periods of um, the short periods of time where the universe went from from one state to another. And by the states, I mean, for example, uh, the I guess you know the transitions where physical interactions uh, that we know at the moment, let's say the electromagnetic observations and nuclear forces, they were more general and they uh, basically uh, were more like a unified force back then and like this kind of transitions we might be able to see uh, by gravitational wave observations uh, we might be able to see gravitational waves from inflation with this which is this period uh, of rap very rapid like super rapid expansion of the universe at the very very early times and for now uh, the evidence for inflation is um, so far is quite solid but it's indirect but uh, the gravitational observations might be uh, might be the way to actually look um, into these processes uh, uh, from another perspective and uh, using a different uh, methods. 
And I guess one additional one is if primordial black holes are a thing, perhaps we could see them merging in this period. Mm, yes. So, uh, yeah, that's also interesting because um, it is expected, well, the black holes that uh, we discussed so far were astrophysical, right? So these are the black holes that formed uh, from, from stars. Uh, the supermassive black holes, on the other hand, uh, uh, they are very big, right? And they're they at the centers of galaxies. So um, there are some theories that um, suggest that maybe there's... Uh, uh, supermassive black holes, the, their seeds, like their initial uh, state was uh, was a primordial black hole, which formed before the first stars uh, in the early universe, and then accreted matter, for example, like collected, uh, grew, grew bigger and bigger and um, formed supermassive black holes. So, um, so yeah, that, that that is one thing that we can see with the gravitational waves. Uh, actually not related to pulsar time and arrays, um, uh, just by look by LIGO Virgo observations and the future instruments um, that will uh, be built after LIGO and Virgo, uh, we might be able to look very far in the universe uh, with, at very high, at very large distances where uh, basically we'll be able to probe the distances where um, even comparable to distance where the first stars in the universe formed. So, uh, and actually if we detect any black hole mergers from, from that uh, far away in time, uh, we'll, um, we'll be able to conclude that these black holes are primordial because no stars uh, were able to form uh, right. at this very, very large distances. Right. I mean, I know that, that one of the mergers that was detected by LIGO is theorized to be a primordial black hole because you can't get a black hole of, of like one of the masses by any known astrophysical process apart from you know like you should get either a heavier a more massive black hole or a less massive black hole but you can't get one in this specific mass range and so it's it's kind of fascinating to think that maybe these things have already been detected if they're out there yes yeah, so there there were different discussions and publications uh, i guess there's a, it's a very uh, active area of research at the moment with all these LIGO detections uh, the scientists debate uh, what, what is the origin and uh, there are different models. So it's, uh, I don't think there is, uh, I guess it's, um, yeah. And even even the, like the standard uh, population models for stars and black holes are also under development. And, uh, you know, from one side, the theor theor uh, theorists try to uh, like make a perfect theory that describes everything and from one side we have observations. So it's uh, like all, you know, growing together to, to make a, a coherent picture of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So does, do would the detection of the gravitational waves using the pulsars tell you anything about the pulsars themselves? Mm, um, well, we um, hmm, probably not the gravitational wave detection, but of the observations of pulsars, they do. Um, yes, they do tell us a lot about the pulsars themselves, and uh, there's also lots of interesting research uh, that um, uh, just even. Um, we can do with timing pulsars and uh, measuring their arrival times and uh, linking these um, measurements to the models of uh, what's inside the neutron stars. And uh, for example, uh, one of the work uh, that I did during my PhD was um, actually observing this uh, noise uh, in, that is associated with uh, the pulsars themselves and uh, um, just trying to uh, discuss where, whether this noise might be um, from from like associated with uh, this uh, the the superfluid turbulence in neutron stars. So uh, this uh, turbulence basically exerts some extra uh, torque on the from from the core to the crust of the neutron star and basically affects rotation. So uh, there are different models, but that uh, that area is um, 
also like an active area of research. And in fact, uh, there are not a lot of um, models there. Um, like this is the area of physics where even there are not a lot of models because neutron stars are very complex and uh, mm -hmm. it's very hard to, to model these things. Well, I know there's there's an instrument on board the International Space Station. I think it's called New Star that detects X-ray blasts coming from from various neutron stars. And it's theorized that it's it's happening when they're they're essentially shrinking a little bit or their crust is shifting or they're having some kind of quake inside the star. So it's definitely there are other methods to to try to detect, but it's sort of like at the you know using x-rays instead of instead of gravitational waves which is kind of a fascinating idea well I, it's been a it's been a great interview and a really exciting technique i love this idea of using something that that nature has provided to learn more about about nature itself um if people want to keep track of the work that you're doing um stay tuned on on the latest advances when they finally make that detection where should they go sorry what do you where, mean? where should people f to follow more if they want to go on the internet oh. and, and see what you're doing where should they what's the best place to to track your work oh yes yeah, so i guess one uh, one way is the website uh, that i have is the it's it's in the link i guess yep. on youtube you already added that so that's that's maybe also on facebook or uh, on Instagram. So these are the, I guess, the social media that I use. Awesome. Okay, great. And uh, well, thank you, Boris. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was awesome. I really appreciate it. Very exciting. And uh, I can't wait to hear about the detection of, you know, of this background of merging supermassive black holes. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah, thank you very much for hosting me, Fraser. It was All right. nice talking to you. All right. Take care. Thanks. Sir. Take care. Bye.